All right. It's great to be with you guys today. Um, I'm really excited for today's sermon because of the topic of singing and worship in the local church. So before I jump in, let me just um, open us up in prayer. So uh, pray with me. Lord, as we approach you and talk about what it means to sing in the church, to worship, may we understand that it's first and foremost about who we are singing to, that we are singing to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that truth will impact everything afterwards. So may we be aware of what it means to sing to you on your throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's try a quick exercise. Let's see if you know. Um, I'm going to say something at the beginning of a song. I want to see if you can guess uh, the end of a song. Let's see how good you guys are. Okay. We're soaring. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. You guys aren't too old for that. I know this is a new high school musical series, but I don't know. I don't think it's that good, um, to be honest. All right. <laughs> Love's an open. <laughs> okay. Um, that's actually I only had two for us, but um, I do believe music is powerful. I think 99% of the people here, you can memorize and recite the lyrics to your favorite songs more than you can recite maybe verses of the Bible or that vocabulary term from history class or um, terms that don't have melody to it. And I think God created humans to have the ability to sing. Think about it. When God created humans, he didn't have to add the ability of vocal cords. He could have just gave us the ability to speak. We're soaring, flying. Love is an open door. That's cool, but there's something even more incredible when you add melody to it. And I think something about music, it takes truth and ideas in the intellect and it moves it into your heart, into your emotion. That's why we sing. That's why when uh, you hear something on the radio, just speak the lyrics and you'll recognize, okay, it's not the same as opposed to singing it. And I think that it's also true in church. We don't just speak the words we just um, sang. We, we sang the words. Melody and music has a way of bringing the truth from our heads to our hearts. And I think... As I think about youth service, something I really want to encourage you guys is what it means to sing. Why do we sing? But if I have to be honest with you guys, I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't sing. And if we can have the next slide, here are just some reasons that I came up with. Maybe I don't feel like it. Maybe I just don't really want to. Number two, I have a bad voice. Three, well, no one else is singing. I kind of want to sing, but if no one else sings, then why would I do that? Which leads to maybe number four, well, I don't want to look weird. I don't want to look silly. What if somebody judges me if I'm the only one singing and my whole row is uh, not singing? I don't want to be that person. Fifth is uh, I'm tired. Sixth is, well, I'm not a Christian. Why, why would I sing? I do think the only legitimate excuse in this list is the last one. If you're not a Christian, um, we actually don't expect you to sing because you don't really know... Um, you, know, you haven't known Jesus as Lord and Savior, so why would you sing praises to someone that you don't really know? Um, and if you, that's you right now, we just want you to observe and see why Jesus is so precious to us. 
But if you call yourself a Christian, but you don't sing, I want to ask you, what does that reveal about your heart? Does it reveal a heart that's gone cold for Jesus? And if we just um, listen to the singing, think back to if you sang just minutes ago. What was going on in your heart? Did you have an emotional um, desire to praise God? Or were you just dead? Were you just talking to your friend? Were you just trying to bother the person next to you? If that's you, what does that say about your heart? Not trying to be mean, but you should actually be honest with yourself if you call yourself a believer. I'm just here helping you to be honest with yourself. If a non-believer walks into this room and they observed your singing, our singing as a congregation, what would, what would they think? And we can actually have the next slide. I have this question. If a non-believer came to youth service for the first time, how would our singing reveal what we truly think about God. Let's say you go to a Laker game. I think Lakers are uh, the team in LA. Feel free to disagree with me. Let's say you walked into game seven of the finals of NBA, and you walked in, and all the crowds were just silent after the game-winning shot. LeBron makes a game-winning three-pointer, they win the NBA championship, and people are just like standing there, and they're on their phones. That would be a strange sight. That would never happen. They would be screaming. They would be hugging strangers. They would be throwing, like, I don't know, their uh, whatever into the stands because they would be so happy. In the same way, if you love God, why is it when, if a non-Christian walks in here, we're dead silent? What does that reveal about what we truly believe? And so if you are interested in what it means to actually worship, I want to encourage you. I don't think I have a good voice. Um, when I sing, when Vanessa and I sing in the car, my tone is often off key and then she makes fun of me and I have to like, you know, calibrate to like whatever is right. And there are certain keys I can't, um, I can't actually hit. Um, there are times when, when I'm singing, I, I know the song so well that it becomes mindless singing. I forget what I'm singing about. Then I get distracted and then I, I wander off. There are times when, um, yeah, sometimes if no one else is singing, well, I don't want to look silly. There have been times in youth service, I sing really loud. Sometimes students just look at me like, who's that guy singing? Then I get self-conscious, if I'm being honest with you. So there's a lot of issues we have, if I had to be honest with you. And that's why I'm so excited about today's sermon. I'm here to encourage you guys. I'm not here to guilt trip anybody. I do think we have so much to grow in this area. And I partly take it as my responsibility. Because you know what happened during COVID? During COVID, during Unicoi, online Unicoi, I chose to not have worship. I didn't think it would work. I think um, it'd be hard to get a worship player. How do we get a band um, on Unicoi? So we had a whole year of not singing. And I think that impacted you. I think that impacted me. And when we came back in person, worship, to be honest, was weak. People aren't even moving their jaws. They're not even singing. And I think there's something very wrong with that picture if you walk into a church that loves Jesus, but they're dead silent, something is wrong with that picture. Now, if most of you guys here are non-believers, that makes sense. I'm not going to make you feel bad. But if you call yourself a believer, we are called to sing. And so this is my, I only have one main point today, actually. Uh, if we have the next slide, this is my main question. Why should Christians sing at church? Why should Christians sing at church? And I'm actually going to give you the answer right now because you know the answer, but it's very familiar. You're like, well, I already know that. And I want to unpack why 
that is. So this is the answer. Why should Christians sing at church? The answer, we sing to God to worship him and give him the praise that he alone deserves. We know that answer. It's not controversial to us. Even if you're non-Christian, you're like, okay, I can agree. I can see why Christians would sing because they believe in a God and they believe he is deserving worship. But if you are a Christian here today, I want to take us on a journey today to explain and to make that sentence, that answer, beautiful to us. How many of you guys ever wished you had either a time machine or a spaceship? Yeah. Maybe you would go in the future to see who you would marry, who, what kind of house you would have. Maybe you go in the past to undo some of the mistakes, some of the things you said. Some of us want a time machine or a space machine or a space space shuttle to go to Mars, Saturn. I love Saturn. The rings are actually, I think, ice, right? Huh? You could use a space shuttle and go to Mars. It's amazing. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to do today. Imagine you're getting onto this space shuttle time machine, and we're going to go somewhere, and I think this place will help you understand why worship is so important. The Bible, in some passages, acts like a time machine and a space shuttle. It can take you into the future, and it can take you into a place that you've never been before. And the Bible, surprisingly, has a, um, an amazing amount of detail about what happens in the future. And so we're going to see a man who saw the future. He was imprisoned on an island, and he was in a vision or in a trance, and Jesus reveals to him the future. And this revelation of these things will soon take place, and it actually instructs us in how to worship. Can anyone guess who this man stranded on an island is? Not Peter. John, yes. John was stranded on an island, imprisoned maybe, and Jesus Christ, who's in heaven at this time, he died, resurrected, and is in heaven. He comes back, and he reveals something to John. And he writes it down in the book of Revelation. So actually, today's passage is going to be in Revelation. When I started the week, I thought it would be in Ephesians, but then when I ended the week, I was in Revelation. And that's what we're going to do today. So turn to Revelation chapter 4. Because this space shuttle, it takes us to heaven. And this time machine takes us to the future. When Jesus was about to execute his wrath on sinners and um, confirm or um, secure salvation for his children. So turn to Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to see a picture. Imagine you're getting off of the space shuttle, the time machine, and you walk into heaven. Imagine you're there. This is a vision. This is actually going to happen in the future. And you see Jesus on the throne. So here's what we're going to read. We're going to read verses 1 to 3, and I'll unpack it little by little. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is John speaking as he sees Jesus. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. That's Jesus speaking. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That's Jesus, verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Let's have the next slide. Um, 
So we see Jesus seated on the throne in heaven in the future. I really hesitated to include a picture because sometimes I think your imagination is better than any artistic uh, artwork out there. But I just made for some people visuals do help. But don't think this is actually what it looks like. I think it'll be much more terrifying and amazing this is. But this is just an artist's rendition. And so we see Jesus seated on the throne of heaven. I think when maybe non-Christians think of Jesus, think, they, think of his, they think of him as some sort of like harmless, loving, uh, maybe 70s guy who's just about all love, peace, no guns, no war. And to a degree, Jesus is all about love. He died for the sins of you and I. But at the same time, Jesus is the king of the universe. He is terrifying. And it describes him in verse 3 that he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Well, what is that? Jasper and Carnelian are jewels or stones. If you can go to the next slide, um, this is what color they look like uh, on earth. Jasper, they're both kind of red-ish. Um, and Jesus in the Bible, or God in the Bible, is often described as light. And so you can imagine that John can't even use words to describe, like, if he has a beard or this, this, and that. He can only describe him using lights and color. That's how amazing he is. And around the throne, there is a rainbow-like halo that surrounds the throne, which should remind you of the promise God made to Noah to never flood the earth by establishing a rainbow. Now, it could have been green because it says emerald in here. Um, so scholars debate, was it um, in a green color or was it more like all the spectrums of color, like a rainbow? So we see Jesus seated on the throne. Now, here's the important part. We see Jesus there. It's important us to see how the people around Jesus are responding to him. Now we're going to see there's 24 elders around the throne. Let's look now at verses 4 to 6. Let's read that. And I'll explain. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So looking at this picture, there's one main throne in the center. Imagine you're walking on the time machine, the space shuttle, you're kind of walking around and you see a main throne, but then around this throne are 24 um, smaller thrones. And as you see this throne, you see lightning, you see thunder. If you've ever been or heard a thunderstorm, it's really scary. It seems like the whole world's going to end. And so if you're here, you'd probably be scared. And we see these 24 thrones these 24 people, the most natural question might be, who are they? Who are these 24 people? Now, there's some debate. Some scholars think that 24, so 12 of them could be um, the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament. Uh, the 12 patriarchs are the 12 sons of Jacob. So Joseph, Reuben, Judah, you know, those 12 patriarchs. And the other 12, what's, a number, what's another group of people in the Bible that has 12? Yeah. Disciples, yes. Some people think it could be the disciples. Obviously not Judas. He was replaced by Matthias after uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. Some people think it could be the 12 patriarchs and the 12 disciples. Other scholars think it could just be heavenly beings who reign with God and have a ruling function. So they're really important. Um, 
And as they're they're seated around the throne, it's a scary, scary scene with thunder and lightning and everything. This is not a pushover Jesus or a pansy Jesus. This is a powerful God. And now, after these 24 elders, we see another terrifying sight. We see creatures who look like the stuff from nightmares. I can't even make this up. So look with me now at verses, um, uh, I think, six, uh, 6 to 8. Uh, or the last part of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. That's scary. Let's stop there. That is scary. If you saw that creature hanging around your backyard, you'd be like, whoa, what is that? I would scream and I would get the shovel. I'd probably die because this is a heavenly being. But it describes four of these creatures. One looks like an ox. One looks like a lion. Um, one looks like an eagle, and one looks like a man, which is really freaky. They have six wings, and there are eyes all around them. This is terrifying. And you might ask, why do they need so many eyes? We only have two. Why do they need so much around their body? Well, some scholars think that these eyes, in a sense, they are extensions of God to oversee God's affairs, to oversee God's creation. And so these four living creatures are the closest to the throne of Jesus. And so they might represent um, oversights over creation. And so these angels, uh, we know there are two types of angels. Uh, according to the Bible, there might be more. But um, does anyone know the two types of angels from the Bible? Starts with a C. Cherubim and an S. Seraphim. Yes. These are two types of angels in heaven, or in the Bible. And they are in heaven. And remember when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden for sinning? The cherubim and seraphim were the ones guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. When I was little, I was, I was always like, wait, so the, is the entrance still somewhere on earth? Like, could I find the entrance to the Garden of Eden? But even if I found it, well, these angels would be guarding it. Um, so, I don't know, it's probably hidden from the human eye. Um, so these four creatures, they are closest to the throne. And now that you see the four creatures and the 24 elders, I want us to see what they do. They're terrifying, but now they begin to sing. These terrifying creatures and elders begin to sing. Let's see what they sing. Look at the end of verses 8. Just one single verse. And day and night, they, meaning the creatures, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let's stop there. So these four creatures are singing a song. Holy, holy, holy. To be holy means to be set apart from something the way that maybe LeBron James is set apart from a freshman basketball player on the bench. There is an infinite gap between their talent level. In the same way, God, who is holy, is infinitely set apart from sinners on earth and even these angels and elders. And so if even stopping right here, there's some application. If you are scared of being a Christian or um, living out your faith at school, you might think Christians, um, we can be scared, but we worship a mighty God that even these creatures worship him. All right. 
Now that we see what the creatures sing, let's see what the 24 elders do. They're going to sing a song too. Let's see what they do before that. Verses 9 to 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So these 24 elders, what they do before they sing, they fall before the throne, and they take off the crown, and they cast it on the ground. And there's actually a Christian band named after this, Casting Crowns. It's showing how unworthy we are and how worthy Jesus is. Now, these 24 elders, very important people in the Bible, potentially, if they are the 12 patriarchs and the 12 disciples, even they themselves cast their crowns before Jesus. In ancient culture, that's what a king would do. A lesser king would come before a higher king, and they would take off their crown, and they would fall before the kings. Um, and some of them would even kiss his garments. And so... We see that these 24 elders, they do that before they sing uh, the song. That worthy are you, our Lord and God. Why is Jesus worthy? Well, it says at the end of verse 11, Jesus is worthy for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. I think the key word in this passage is worthy. Why do you worship Jesus? Because he is worthy. Why do you pay hundreds of dollars to go to your favorite concert? Because they are worthy of your time and driving to, I don't know, LA or Vegas or Arizona to go to a concert. Why do you pay hundreds of dollars um, for, I don't know, clothing or camera? Because you find that thing to be worthy. Why do we worship Jesus and set aside, our, um, set aside how we feel about how we sound? Because he is worthy. I think every person in this room, there's something in this life we find worthy. Maybe you find your grades worthy. Maybe you find your Rubik's Cube worthy. Maybe you find your bike worthy. But if you find Jesus worthy, you will sing. You will worship. And think about this. This is so simple. And if you're a Christian, you agree with this. But we often forget it. God created you. God created you. Biologically, we came from our parents, but God created mankind. So God created you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body and with your voice. I want us to imagine you just, again, we're still in heaven, off, walked out of the time machine, walked out of the space shuttle. Imagine if how we sang minutes ago, imagine if we did that in the presence of these elders and creatures. What a contrast that would be. Would we be ashamed of our worship when we see the worship that Jesus truly deserves? If we walk into heaven with the attitude that we have, maybe we're just kind of like, hmm, yeah, I don't really want to sing. I'm just kind of here like a, like a zombie. I don't really want to do anything. I'm checking my phone. Um, I'm nudging my neighbor. If you brought that attitude to heaven, 
I think you would be embarrassed. And to be honest, I think I would be embarrassed if I walked into heaven seeing the way I just did. Because I know even as a pastor, and I'm supposed to be the spiritual guide for you guys, I know that I have still a lifetime to go to worship Jesus and to, and to see him as he truly is. And so if you were in that scene in heaven, how would you worship? Would you change the way that you worship? I want to think about that because how the elders sing, how the creatures sing, it's a picture of what it means to truly worship Jesus. And I admit that as your pastor, I also take responsibility in training and teaching and instructing you what it means to worship. And that's why today's scene was so beautiful. So if you call yourself a Christian and you believe you are, sing. Sing. And if the people around you are not singing, you're not the weird one. They're the weird ones. They are weird because they do not know that in heaven, heavenly worship, this is Jesus on his throne. And these powerful creatures are singing to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so if you don't sing, this isn't a peer pressure, it's just the truth. You are still dead in your sin if you do not see Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's something wrong with us if we're not singing and we call ourselves Christians. The way if you walk into a Game 7 NBA game, they win the game and you're not cheering, there's something wrong with that fan. They're, not pro- they're probably not a true fan. So if you call yourself a true Christian, we should sing. We should sing joyfully. So let's have the next slide, please. And let's go back. Um, that's the answer. Uh, so the Q&A, I had this at the beginning. I hope that the answer now makes sense. We sing to God to worship him and give him the praise that he alone deserves. So get back on the time machine, the space shuttle, come back to youth service in Walnut. You just saw a picture of what worship in heaven is like in the future. I hope that instructs you in what it means to worship. So go to the next slide. So those same reasons. The thing at the bottom. I hope today's uh, scene being in heaven today for this momentary time is helpless to say, I don't care if I have a bad voice. I don't care if no one else is singing. I don't care if I look weird or silly. I sing because Jesus is on the throne and I want to join what heaven is already doing, singing the praises of heaven to the one true king. Something, if you're really serious about singing, I have a couple of suggestions. I don't have this on the PowerPoints. But here's a couple of suggestions. If you're serious about singing, singing grows out of a growing relationship with Jesus. To sing, genuine singing grows, comes out of a growing relationship with Jesus. If you're, not, if you're not walking with Jesus from Monday to Saturday, well, you're not going to be genuinely excited to worship Jesus on Sunday. So what are you doing in the rest of the week, Monday to Saturday? Are you in the Bible? Are you praying? Because if you are, you'll be that much more ready to sing to Jesus. Number two, be around other brothers and sisters who also want to worship Jesus. If you're in the corner of the room and you're around people who don't really sing, but then there's another corner of the room that they are singing, well, practically, you would want to be with other people 
who are crazy about Jesus and want to sing. And so even on Friday nights when we're combined with Turf and Unicoi, I really love what it's been like the past couple of weeks because we're seeing some older students in college who love Jesus and they sing their hearts out. I think that's a great example. But you know what? We can be an example to them as well. Just because you're young, that doesn't mean you can't set an example for them as well. So here's my second suggestion. If you want to remember or be inspired by singing, go to children's worship. The children there are so joyful in singing. But the sad part about moving to your teenage years, sometimes you just get self-conscious. In children's worship, everyone else sings. Some of you guys were just there months ago. I saw you guys. You guys were singing, and you guys were unashamed. But something happens. We go into youth. We see the older kids. If the older kids don't sing, well, the younger kids are not going to sing. So if you're between like 10th and 12th grade, I challenge you. Are you singing? Are you singing joyfully and boldly? Or are you ashamed about singing? Sometimes we need a reminder. If you want, you're serious about that, just tell me, hey, Kevin, I want to go to children's worship for a couple, for this one Sunday, I'll come back for the sermon. I bless you to do that. I hopefully want you to see what it's like when children who are just so authentic in their feelings, if they don't want to sing, they won't sing, but if they do want to sing, they sing their hearts out. It's a beautiful thing. So here's my big idea as I bring things to a close. The worship in heaven of Jesus must shape your worship of King Jesus on earth. Worship in heaven must shape worship on earth. Hope that makes sense. We just took a trip to heaven. We saw what it was like when, when the creatures and elders there truly worshiped Jesus. So now that we're back here on earth, sing. Worship. He's worth it. As I said earlier, instead of having one song response, now we have three. I did that intentionally, and I'm glad the worship team was okay with that, and the AV team who have to make the worship slides, um, because we want to put this into practice. So let me pray for us, and let's go into three songs of singing. Lord, thank you for this picture of the future, a picture of what it's like in heaven. You give us so much more detail than what we asked for. We often wonder what heaven is like, and today we just got a firsthand experience. Lord, we saw the four terrifying creatures that would scare us half to death if we saw them with our own eyes. And they themselves... Sing to you, Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are so much higher above everything in this world because you created this world. And Lord, we saw the 24 elders. We saw the way they cast down their crowns to praise you. And Lord, whatever we are holding on to in this life that seems worthy, our school, our sports, our friends, our um, whatever we find worthy, help us to set that aside, to cast that on the ground and to worship you, to praise you, and to give you the worship you deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.